especially in this part of the halving cycle, uh, there's a pretty asymmetric reward for, for holding Bitcoin. Hello there from Bedford, the Bitcoin mecca of the world. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got an interview with macroeconomist Lynn Alden, where we discuss why a currency devaluation is likely. But before that, and before I tell you about my amazing sponsors, I do just want to recommend the first in a series of shows, which has just been released on my sister podcast, Defiance, where we look into Ghislaine Maxwell, the girlfriend of disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. That is available at defiance.news now from my amazing sponsors. So first up, we have Casa, who are the best in Bitcoin security. With Casa, it could not be easier to protect your Bitcoin from hackers, personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failures, and so much more. And I twisted their arm to run a competition, and they are going to give away a one-year platinum membership for their Bitcoin multi-sig security solution worth $1,800. For your chance to win, you just need to register your email address at keys.casa forward slash what Bitcoin did and join their mailing list. The winner will be announced tomorrow, that is September the 23rd, and that is keys.casa forward slash what Bitcoin did. Also, if you are interested in checking out their products and improving your Bitcoin security, then head over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up is my other sponsor, sportsbet.io, who are the best in online gaming. And you might have heard recently with the return of the Premier League that they are sponsoring Southampton and they have put a Bitcoin logo on the front of the shirt. Well, they haven't stopped there. They've also just announced that they are the new betting partner for Arsenal. They are really pushing Bitcoin out there to football fans. And with football back on the TV and the Premier League back in full swing, Liverpool with two wins under the belt, it is time to get out there and put a wager on your fave team. And Sportsbet.io have promotions for all football fans. Just head over to Sportsbet.io forward slash promotions and Sportsbet is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. And also, it's great to welcome back Least Authority as a sponsor of the podcast. Now, this one is for you techies out there. Those of you who are creating the applications. Least Authority is a security consulting company pushing the limits of how to build privacy-respecting solutions. They specialize in security audits, design specification reviews, and security by design. They can help you improve the security of your wallet application, key management solution, layer 2 protocol, P2P network design, use of cryptography, and so much more. Would you like to boost your security strategy? Well, you can arrange a no-obligation call to find out how Least Authority can help you on your next project. Just head over to their website and hit the schedule a call button. That's at leastauthority.com, which is L-E-A-S-T-A-U-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y.com. Okay, so onto the show today, and I have macroeconomist Lynn Alden. Now, a few days ago, you might have seen a tweet from Nick Carter singing Lynn's praises and linking to her article, A Century of Fiscal and Monetary Policy, Inflation versus Deflation. Now, I read the article, actually, I read it twice, and while parts of it stretched my understanding of economics, I did finish it understanding why a currency devaluation is likely so I reached out to Lynn and said, come on, do you want to come on the show? Do you want to discuss this? Do you want to make this easy for people like me to understand? And in the article, Lynn talks about debt cycles, monetary and fiscal policy, while looking back over the last century for examples of how these cycles tend to play out. It's brilliantly written, and I've included a link to it in the show notes. I also recommend signing up to Lynn's premium service. I've signed up. I'm really excited to start receiving her 
write-ups about what's happening with the economy. And as Nick said, there probably isn't a clearer macro thinker out there right now. It was also a really interesting conversation, and it just makes me more confident of holding a significant amount of my wealth in Bitcoin and hedging this potential inflationary issue that we're going to see over the next decade. So I hope you enjoy this one. If you have any feedback, you have any questions, you know you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And as I said earlier, I've got a new show that's just been released on Defiance, looking into Ghislaine Maxwell, who was the partner of disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. This first episode, we look into her father, her background, uh, relationship with him. His name's Robert Maxwell. Now, if you're from the UK, you'll know him very well. He was a media mogul. But even researching this, there was a whole bunch of crazy shit about him I never knew. Honestly, it's a crazy story. Definitely worth checking out. You can find out that at defiance.news. And as I said, if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Hello, Lynn. How are you? Okay, I'm good. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming on. I've been uh, a distant observer of uh, some of your work recently, but it's uh, it keeps popping up in my timeline. And then uh, there was a very gushing tweet the other day from Nick Carter, which uh, I don't. Did you see it? I think I know. Yeah, I I had a, a two podcasts with him. He's yeah, he's really sharp. He's really sharp. He's been on the podcast a bunch of times. But he said, "Is there a clearer macro thinker than Lynn Alden today?" Posted your article, and I read it. Uh, took took I think two sessions to go through it, and then obviously I wrote to you and said, "Hey, Lid, I like this article. Can we talk about it?" But I'm going to be honest. I was good for about eighty percent, and then about the last twenty percent, I got a bit lost. So sure. we're going to cover that today. Are you okay with that? Yep, absolutely. C- can I tell you what my summary kind of was from the article? Sure. My kind of reading between the lines of it all was the the main problem that we have with the economy is politics and, and election cycles. Uh, to some extent, well, it's because it's very uh, short-term focused. It, it definitely doesn't yeah. help. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, all the kind of interference and kick, either kicking the can down the road or policy decisions with elections coming up, it feels like that's one of the biggest problems. Is that is that fair, though? I think that I think that kind of gets down to that quote, like uh, you know, democracy is the worst system except all the rest, right? So yeah. you know, we have we have all the benefits of democracy, but yeah, one of the downsides is that uh, you know, because we frequently elect our politicians, they're always optimizing for whatever their election term is. So that could be depending on the particular branch, that could be two years, four years, five years, depending on where you are. Yeah, it's funny you should say that. My brother keeps saying that to me because I keep going to him, telling him about Bitcoin and anarchism and he was like no democracy is the best we have because everything else is worse <laughs> um was it churchill he said that i think so I think it might have been yeah yeah okay well listen look i've got so many you should see my other screen here i've got so many questions for you <laughs> right okay so we're really going to go through your article step by step okay so the big debate between fiscal and monetary policy or in you put or inflation versus deflation but for like people listening who don't really know don't really understand how the economy works or how central banks and governments work can you just explain what fiscal policy is what monetary policy is and how they differ sure so fiscal policy is what you know elected officials uh, can do so it's it's spending bills passed by congress signed by the president here in the us each system of course has their own different process for how that goes but it's basically it's it's the you know the authority of the sovereign government to spend money into the economy essentially and it's also their tax policy so it's how much taxes they remove from the, the economy so it's you know things like how big their deficits are going to be uh, you know what 
what kind of uh, tax policies or spending policies they're going to have. Are they going to do, uh, you know, say infrastructure stimulus? Are they going to do tax cuts? Are they going to send out checks to everyone? That that sort of thing. That's all kind of a fiscal decision. And then on the other side, monetary policy is what central banks do. So that includes controlling interest rates. That includes doing quantitative easing. And that can include buying other types of assets. Uh, so it's it's all kind of that tends to be. Uh, you know, it's it's mostly appointed officials. So in most countries, you know, those central bankers are appointed by politicians, and so it's kind of it's kind of off the public radar more so than whereas fiscal policy is more front and center. Okay, and we couldn't be at a clearer time where the kind of work you're doing couldn't be more important. Um, I've certainly only ever lived through two kind of economic crashes that really stand out. Obviously, the two thousand eight financial crisis. Um, was quite an interesting time because I bought a, a house about a month before it happened, and then, uh, oh, yeah, it was, it was a, yeah, it was, it was perfect timing, and uh, and then obviously what we're going through right now with the pandemic, but the boat they actually feel quite different uh, in in different ways. But your article is very interesting because you obviously wanted to look at the long term cycles at play here and kind of look to history. Uh, of what happened but let's before we go into the long-term cycle should we let's cover the short-term cycle first you originally originally talked about the kind of five to ten year credit cycles is this like is this the traditional boom and bust that i study in economics yeah exactly yeah it's it's this the way our system works is that it's it's you know you have it's people often describe it's like a forest fire so you have a, a period of build up and then you have you know a forest fire you clear some stuff out and then you build up again and that's kind of the classic boom bust cycle uh you know you start off the cycle uh, you know, businesses invest, people consume, you get more and more leverage building up, but then eventually it, it kind of hits like a, a euphoric stage, you know, you have overinvestment, overconsumption, over leveraging, and then, it, you know, either, either it just kind of deflates naturally, right? It's a bubble can kind of pop for no reason, or you can have an external catalyst come along and because their system's so fragile, it's easier to, to unravel at that point. So then you have a period of deleveraging and you have, you know, classic recession. But then, you know, monetary policymakers come in, they cut interest rates, which makes it easy to refinance debt and take on more debt. And then usually fiscal policymakers, they often have uh, inbuilt fiscal policies like unemployment insurance that are already kind of pre-decided. So they kick in. And then usually there's there's some sort of, you know, kind of a deliberate stimulus as well. It could be a little infrastructure stimulus. It could be an extra unemployment benefit, something something to kind of kick, uh, you know, the economy back into motion. And so that what that does is that usually that deleveraging event doesn't deleverage all the way, right? With the lower interest rates, you now kind of, you start from a, from a higher leverage point. And then you start building up the next cycle from there. So over time, you kind of get higher and higher leverage in the system through business cycles. And that that's what leads up to the longer term business cycle. Is this all basically human greed? Pretty much, yeah. I think I think our natural yeah. our natural tendency is to try to push things pretty much as far as they can go. Uh, so you kind of you don't just say, okay, we're going to look ten years in advance and make sure leverage doesn't get this high. It's no, we're we're going to push it until it breaks, and then you know we're going to try to fix it as fast as possible, and then push it till it breaks again. And that's it's kind of yeah, it's very rare to to have kind of an economy that doesn't follow that approach. Well, also there seems to be little little reward for those who are a little bit more conservative with their money. Yeah, there's there's kind of I mean, it all depends. So for example. You know, businesses that have been classically conservative and countercyclical do get rewarded, 
you know, like for example, Warren Buffett has that famous approach where he tends to build up cash during a, you know, when things are expensive and then when things get cheap, he deploys that cash and, and kind of uh, buys out businesses. And that's, that's kind of helped. Uh, this has been an unusual cycle because when you reach the end of that cycle, if you get to the long-term debt cycle, it, it almost becomes that the, the people that were kind of counter cyclical do get punished, right? Because you have kind of, uh, you know, currency devaluation or bailouts that, that come kind of quicker for those that are struggling. So it's, there's kind of a sweet spot. If you're struggling too much, you, you go bankrupt so fast, you don't, you know, you don't get helped. But if you're kind of in that middle ground where you're, you know, you're, you're not really worse than anyone else, but you're just as bad as everyone else, that's when you kind of benefit from that bailout because the, the bailout's kind of for the whole system. All right. So another thing that really stood out to me, because you talked about 2008 and 2000, well, well, 2020, what's happening now. And obviously two cycles I've lived through. Uh, I experienced 2008 and it had an impact on myself and my family. In 2020, I'm, you know, I'm watching it now and I'm, I'm watching it happen here. And what, what I couldn't figure out is like, it felt like 2008 itself should or could have been the end of a long-term debt cycle. And it hasn't been. And I was trying to figure out through your article what the reason this is. And I, I was I got to the point where you talked about uh, essentially you have international competitors now and it's kind of a game of chicken. Who's gonna who's gonna blink first? Is should two thousand and eight have been the end of a, a cycle itself? I think they definitely could have done more at that point. Uh, one thing that I showed in the article is that uh, the last time this long-term debt cycle uh, played out, you know, like in the in the 30s and 40s, they actually kind of had a, a, a two-period uh, spike as well. So you had the banking crisis uh, in the early 1930s, and then you had the, the fiscal crisis and, of course, the war in the in the 40s. And whereas this time, you know, we had the banking crisis in the 2008, 2009. Uh, and then it kind of spilled over in, into Europe in many places uh, in, the, in the years after that, where they had that sovereign uh, debt crisis and that banking crisis. And that was kind of stage one. Uh, and then, you know, now in 2020, we're kind of having that 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 second part where actually it looks a lot more like the late 30s or the 1940s, you know, obviously without the war. But we have the we have the pandemic and we have the, the fiscal deficits that haven't been, you know, we haven't seen deficits like this since the war. So in many ways, this is kind of the the period after that that banking mm. crisis, right? So we already had, in some ways, a private deleveraging in the sense that debt as a percentage of money supply has gone down from its all-time peak. So we kind of had the the end of that cycle. Uh, however, now we're kind of in the sovereign phase of it. So we, we've we've pushed all that up to the sovereign level. Uh, one thing that's different compared to last time is that we we. By the time they did it last time in the, in the 30s and 40s, they did deleverage the private system a little bit more uh, by the time they had that kind of sovereign debt bubble, whereas this time they've, they've deleveraged it less compared to then. So, you know, we kind of we still have very high private leverage while we also have very high public leverage. Right. Okay. I think we should go back a step. We should probably just work through what happens in these cycles. So, you know, people listening understand, because I guess the goal of an interview like this, Lynn, is for me to get to the point where people fully understand what's happening in the economy, fully understand what's potentially coming so they can help prepare for it. And kind of my summary from it was, is that some kind of devaluation is coming, likely inflationary, and therefore... Yeah, it's a pretty good thing I hold Bitcoin, but I, you know, I, I need to be prepared for that potential eventuality. Yet it might not be coming as soon as I think it is. That was kind of, it was almost like you look at you. Some people are expecting this to happen right now, but I think from from reading the article, you were saying this is kind of like something that may happen across the whole decade. It, it's usually a process, yeah. So yeah. Uh, 
I guess to go back to that short-term debt cycle thing, so those those short-term cycles keep building up, and you keep building more and more leverage. Uh, mm-hmm. Usually, the end point the end point to that kind of cycle is when interest rates reach zero, right? Because the the central bank can't keep doing that process where they they get lower and lower rates in each cycle. Uh, so they run into zero, and then they they switch over to quantitative easing. So they they create bank reserves to buy treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, sometimes other assets. Uh, and so then you kind of go into that that route. But there's not a lot of kind of stimulus effort that the that the central bank alone can do at that point. And that's when it really shifts over to the fiscal side. So what makes what makes the uh, long-term debt cycle different than a short-term debt cycle is that there's so much debt in the system, and monetary policy pretty much runs out of ammo. And then it shifts over to the physical policy, and that's when you're more likely to get an inflationary outcome or, uh, you know, a currency devaluation, which which often go hand in hand. And so, uh, as we go forward, kind of my my premise is that you know whether or not there's going to be inflation or well, eventually I think there will be, but the timing of that will largely depend on fiscal decisions. And so, for example, in the United States, we had a big fiscal boost uh, in in March, and then uh, you know they were kind of expecting to have one in August, September, but they've been in gridlock, right? So now we're kind of mm-hmm. back in that more disinflationary period because there's not a lot of stimulus coming down that pike. And so, if we look forward, uh, that's generally how these things play out. When you have so much debt in the system, we're at the zero bound. Monetary policy is out of ammo. It comes down to kind of these massive deficits that the central bank. Uh, monetizes. And then uh, one of the outcomes is that uh, sovereign bond yields remain, uh, you know, below the inflation rate generally for quite a long time. So you have that, you know, anyone holding currency or or bonds usually kind of loses purchasing power uh, over a long period of time. And it can happen quickly or it can happen gradually. And part of that depends on, on, you know, kind of some of the assets that that place has. If they have a lot of productive capacity, if they have a lot of financial assets, uh, they can kind of have that, that play out more gradually. Whereas if you get kind of a bigger shock or a bigger system change, then yeah, you can have a a very brief kind of inflationary outcome. Is is that by design? Do they keep bond rates below the inflation level by design or is that uh, a natural occurrence from what's happening in the economy? Oh, yeah, that's by design. So if you look at the 1940s, for example, which was the only other time, uh, I often use the US as my example, but this cycle plays out, uh, you know, uh, throughout the developed world. And so in the United States, uh, during World War II, we were running just absolutely massive deficits, and we brought debt to GDP up to over 100%. And what what the Federal Reserve did was first they, they started buying some of the treasuries, right? Because there's so much treasuries issued that the private sector couldn't absorb it all. So they bought some. But then they also said, okay, we're going to lock uh, interest rates for across the, the treasury uh, duration spectrum at 2.5% or less. So the short end was locked at like 0.38% and the long end was locked at 2.5%. And so they pegged rates at a, at a very low level. And then they defended that peg by saying, okay, every time that yields try to go above those levels, we'll just buy treasuries. We'll buy as many treasuries as we need with printed money, essentially, to, to keep that peg intact. And so in the 1940s, you had several uh, inflation spikes, right? Because you're running very large deficits. You had a couple supply shocks here and there because, you know, you're, you're kind of massing all this production for the war. And so you had, you actually had certain years where, where inflation was higher than it was in the 70s. You know, we all think of the 70s as the inflationary decade, but in the 40s, uh, the cumulative inflation was almost as much and it came in three kind of really big spikes. But if you look at the chart, Treasury yields were still locked at 2.5%. So by the time the decade ended, uh, you know anyone holding treasuries, of course, they got all their money back, they got their interest back, they made a nominal return, but they actually lost about a third of their purchasing power 
uh, based on you know kind of standard measurements for that uh, because their yields were they were not keeping up with inflation and that was that was a, a, a specific decision by the central bank and the treasury working together right okay and and is that on old bonds they would have sold previously or can would they start will they be selling new bonds and continuing that that practice on because like doesn't that create isn't there like a ratings agency that like rates the the creditworthiness of the bonds and therefore these just sound like they're junk like who would be buying this well yeah it's it's definitely challenging that because this time's going to be different so back then of course you had a much less uh, sophisticated kind of financial center around the bonds you had less real-time information so it, it, there kind of wasn't a lot of like widespread information about how right, bad okay. these bonds were. Uh, no but uh, yeah, no internet. Uh, and to answer your question, it applied to all treasuries, right? So it, new, old, just all, all say all 10-year treasuries were locked at 2.5% or less. And, and the Federal Reserve would print money as needed to buy those. Now, if you, fl- if you go forward to now, uh, we're actually seeing that play out a little bit in certain countries. So Japan's doing yield curve control. Australia is doing yield curve control. Uh, on their on their I think their three year uh, you know treasury uh, and uh, the Federal Reserve has been you know they started talking about potentially doing yield curve control again in 2019 even before the pandemic uh, but then in early 2020 when we had the you know the, they had to buy a ton of treasuries we had that big liquidity crash uh, we, they've kind of revived discussions again about doing yield curve control and they cited Japan they cited Australia and they cited the 1940s USA as different examples where that could play out. Now, the current uh, kind of situation in Japan and Australia is that they don't have these big, giant double digit spikes in inflation, right? So it's not it's not this egregious thing where inflation wants to be 10 percent and, and they're locking the yield at like, you know, near zero. So it's 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 currently kind of a subtle uh, move on the market. It's kind of saying, OK, you might want to fluctuate a little bit, but we're not going to let you. We're going to ha- we're going to hold it down to this level. Uh, but if you do get kind of more and more fiscal, that could become more and more apparent. Right. OK. It's really confusing. I'm gonna be honest. Like for someone like me, it's, I kind of look at this and I'm like, one of the things I, I, I like comes back to when I think about Lynn is like, is the economic system and and the set of rules and that govern our economic system are they themselves functionally broken? Do do you look at it and do you think the entire economic system, the Keynesian way of doing things, is completely broken, or do you accept this is the only way to run an economy? No, I think there are better ways to run it. I I think. What, the thing that's funny is that a lot of it is human nature. So, you know, it, some of it is 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 that kind of specific decisions. But if we were kind of in a different system, we probably would have similar problems. Uh, but, they, you know, they might be more muted. They might be more counteracted by smarter policy. Uh, but, for example, if you look back literally thousands of years in history, we have debt jubilees, for example, happen every you know, every few generations, because it's kind of a natural tendency for, for wealth to build up and concentrate. Uh, and it's kind of natural to kind of build up debt until something kind of really forces you to deleverage. So these these sort of things tend to be, you know, partially linked to human nature. But then, yeah, I think specific policy choices can certainly exacerbate that rather than rather than counteract it. Yeah, because you had it in your articles at 600 BC in Athens, what was happening there. But the it's mainly the social impact of what wealth inequality, what happens. And the I think I, I, I'd have to dig it out in your article, but it's a brilliant quote. But there was like a fear of uh, like, uh, here, here we've got it. Uh, the disparity of fortune between the rich and the poor had reached its height so that the city seemed to be in a dangerous condition and no other means for freeing it from disturbances seemed possible but despotic power. It's like, so you have to either head for, uh, head for tyranny or some form of kind of 
leveling the playing field. And it made, it made me think of, I was in um, Santiago and Chile before the pandemic, and a very situa- similar situation was happening there. There's a massive, uh, a massive growth in wealth inequality, uh, rising health, sorry, rising wealth inequality. They've had a change to their pension systems, which essentially screwed a whole bunch of people out of pensions. And they were seeing social unrest on the streets. And I, we, I think we're starting to see this social unrest spread into. I mean, we've seen it in Iraq, we've seen it in Lebanon, we've seen it in France. We know essentially we're seeing it in the US. So there yeah. is a, like a social impact of wealth inequality. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, in that same book that I cited, uh, it's showing that basically, you know, because that, that's from Lessons of History. It goes, it kinda, history. I bought it. Oh, yeah, it's a really good book. It's like 100 yeah. pages. It's one of the, yeah, it's a really good read. And, you know, one of the things that points out is that this this is a pattern that does keep repeating. We it, one, one way I describe it is that basically capital compounds exponentially, whereas labor compounds linearly, right? So in in that kind of natural where that play out, as wealth tends to concentrate, it then tends to more easily keep concentrating. So you tend to get more and more concentration of that wealth into smaller and smaller hands. And that usually makes the economy kind of weaken because then you have the, the middle class is over leveraged and their incomes aren't going up. So you kind of have that stagnation. Uh, and, you know, Every time you kind of get to that that end of that long term debt cycle, that's when the kind of society has a decision point. And so sometimes they do policies to try to to try to counter that effect a little bit. So they try to do policies to help the middle class, the working class, and to kind of alleviate that. If they fail to do so, that's when sometimes you get outright revolutions, right? So if, if it's kind of like if they don't respond in a moderate manner, then they face you know a more severe measure. And one of the way the books that describes it is that you can either kind of distribute wealth. Uh, you know, kind of somewhat, or you can distribute poverty, which is if if you kind of go the revolution route, usually no one no one wins really in that kind of route, at least for a long time. Yeah. So is that? Do you think that's what's happening right now? So essentially, we've got massive social unrest, especially what's happening in the U.S. now, and we've seen like these BLM protests. That I think a lot of us realize they aren't really about Black Lives Matters, especially when you start to see some of the more kind of Marxist rhetoric. Do you think this is a similar situation? Do you think this is what's happening? Because I think we also saw during the, I mean, I forget the report I read, but with the stimulus packages, the impact that actually had on on wealth inequality itself, that saw just a massive rise in wealth inequality. Um, So do you think that's what's playing out here right now? Absolutely. I think that there's definitely an economic, uh, you know, kind of context or background behind some of this. Uh, and because, you know, when people are when people are happy, when people are kind of, you know, things are going well, they tend to, to overlook some of the other issues. But then, you know, when they're already economically suffering, when they can't work, when they're kind of they feel like they're reliant on on external forces that they they can't control, then, of course, mm-hmm. they get more frustrated and things come out kind of, you know, more violently or more, uh, even in terms of just peaceful protests, depending on, you know, different people, of course, do it in different ways. And I know you had um, uh, Luke, Luke Groban on your show the yeah, other week. Yeah, Luke's great. Yeah, and he, yeah, he's, and I know the chart that he cited, because I've cited it before too, which is basically that if you chart, you know, in the United States, the, the middle class, you know, kind of what, what percentage of their paycheck has to go towards essentials, right? So back in the 80s, it was like half their paycheck, uh, whereas, you know, that kind of slowly got up over time until now, you know, incomes failed to keep pace with with the growth of essential uh, goods, especially healthcare. That's been a really big kind of uh, contributor to 
to the problem. And then by now it's at the point where the the, the median kind of male income no longer covers the expense, uh, the essentials. And of course, that's when you get you get more and more kind of populism, you get more and more frustration. And then the challenging thing is that a lot of people don't know where to direct it. They don't know they don't know if they want to direct it at one political party, another political party. Do they want to direct it at immigrants? Do they want to direct it at China outsourcing? There's so many different paths that they could direct it to. Uh, they could, you know, some people directed entirely at the Fed, for example. Some people directed entirely at the fiscal side, and it's it's very challenging for a lot of people to kind of break down what is what is the specific problem, where is it coming from, and where is the solution. Uh, so you kind of get all these different groups that are really polarized, and they all they all kind of have a different conception of what the problem is and how to fix it. Okay, can we point it at Steve Mnuchin? Uh, I think you can definitely, you know, he didn't start it, but he's definitely he he's he's not. I wouldn't say he's helping it. You know, this this process has been in place for decades, but he's definitely one of the places where people can point to now and and say that you know he's certainly not helping. And one thing, for example, in in this particular crisis, just you know, kind of the way that stimulus was structured in many countries, in, including the U.S., you know, it, it's been it's been kind of top down almost. So you had. You know, in some cases, you know, people got stimulus checks, people got unemployment checks, whereas if, you know, people running a small business often got kind of million dollar injections, right? And some of them didn't even need it. There were firms that were, you know, pretty much unharmed by this, and then they get a million dollar PPP loan that turns into a grant, right? So I know. it's kind of like, it, yeah. I found out about that recently. What These people, you don't actually have to pay them back. Yeah, most of them don't get paid back, uh, and they, they even said ahead of time that the ones under like two hundred fifty thousand would barely be scrutinized at all. Uh, so some of the really some of the bigger ones, like the two to five million range, uh, they they would get a little bit of scrutiny to make sure there's no like outright fraud. But yeah, those those loans essentially get forgiven as long as they met certain certain you know kind of they had to they had to keep their existing number of employees on for like three four months. They had to meet a couple kind of basic requirements, which especially if your business was not struggling in the first place, it was really easy to accomplish. So there are plenty of firms that didn't need them and and still just got literally pure capital injection, and that goes right up to the top of the company, right? So the the owners of that company kind of just you know, they, they get that kind of half a million, a million dollar injection, depending on how big their company was. Apart from that dude in Florida who got caught buying a Lamborghini. Did you see that? I, I think I heard about that. I know that there was one, um, I think there's one athlete that got caught and there was like another, like another business guy that got caught. I haven't tracked all of them, yeah. but yeah, there's a couple of egregious cases that, that get flagged. But the more subtle case is just someone didn't break the, didn't break the rules, uh, but they, their business didn't really need it. And there's no way to kind of prove their business didn't need it. And then they just get that injection and they don't, you know, they don't go out and buy a Lamborghini and just, you know, it just never gets addressed. Should have waited a couple of years to get that Lamborghini. You could have probably got away with it. <laughs> but it just yeah. feels like, it just feels like this system is just a big mess. It feels completely unfair. It doesn't seem to be rewarding the right people. Like I, I'm not an economist in, in any stretch of the imagination, but like it's really obvious to me that this. But then, then you know what, Lynn? Then I think is this just systemic? Is this a problem that that is like something you can't escape from if you're going to have an economy run on these models, which are you know you're saying and happening in, in, all across the world in different countries? It's just just a natural occurrence, or is there is there a fundamentally different way to run the economy? If we had a standard like the gold standard, would that have, would that make a difference? Well, the gold standard was in place in the say that you know the 1920s, for example, into the 30s, and that was broken uh, because okay. you know they, despite having the gold standard, they still were able to basically print money and have that kind of standard 
you know, kind of visible until kind of underneath the surface, it was crumbling, right? So they kind of couldn't support it anymore, but it was still technically there. And then it kind of, you know, at, when you get that big kind of banking crisis, it all kind of breaks at once, even though it really kind of broke gradually leading up to that point. You know, I, this this sort of dichotomy comes up in multiple systems. So for example, uh, you know, it used to come up more in, in aristocracy, obviously, right? So there's if there's centers of power, that kind of, you know, they have wealth and then that wealth gives them more access to political influence, right? And you kind of have that play out. If it, if it gets too egregious, that's when you have like a revolution. So you have, you happen in France, obviously it happened in Russia. You have these kind of pushes against the aristocracy. Uh, and in today's system, you know, it, in most developed countries, we don't have kind of that, that you either don't have any aristocracy at all, or we don't have, you know, powerful aristocracy, but then uh, you have kind of in place that a crony form of capitalism. So instead of kind of that health, healthy form of capitalism, you get you get kind of that that buildup so that people that get more and more wealth can then influence politics more and more in their own favor. So it kind of accelerates that concentration rather than kind of having a, a healthier system of, of kind of boom and bust. Or another way that I've seen described is, is kind of socialism for the rich and, and capitalism for the poor, which is one of the worst <laughs> possible versions of, the, of that system. You want, you want kind of a level playing field. Yeah, um, do you know Travis Kling? I've heard of him. Yeah, so he's been on my podcast a couple of times, and he he said um, quantitative easing is universal basic income for rich people. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it do, it does kind of play a role in in uh, boosting up asset prices. So a lot of people thought it would be inflationary outright, and it's not it's not super inflationary outright because it's it doesn't go through that fiscal route. Uh, it doesn't really encourage banks to lend more, but it does seem to have a pretty strong effect for kind of uh, reflating asset prices, uh, at least to some extent. Next up, I talked to Lynn more about Bitcoin economics and currency devaluations. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing sponsors. So let's talk about Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. The only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. And why? Well, they are consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange and you know what? Security is really important to me. I've really upped my security practices recently and using an exchange that really, really focuses on your security is the number one important thing for me. Outside of that, though, they also have the best in-class customer service. So whatever issue you have, if you reach out to them, they're going to get back to you, whoever you are, whatever that issue is. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have every tool you could possibly need. Whatever your level of experience, it could not be easier to sign up at Kraken.com and start trading Bitcoin. They also have this beautiful mobile first app. So if you want to trade Bitcoin on the go, if you're on Starbucks ordering a Frappuccino and you're thinking, I want some more Bitcoin, you can do that with Kraken Pro. And with margin trading, futures and their OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. That's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And lastly, but never least this week, is BlockFi, who are the future of Bitcoin and financial services. I am a customer. I am a customer of their interest accounts, and every month I receive interest on my Bitcoin. I love it. You can also become a customer. And not only do they have an interest account, you can use your Bitcoin as collateral and take out a USD loan. You can fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now fully manage your account on the go. With so much more coming this year, I know they're going to smash it. If you're interested in checking out BlockFi, I recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. So do we have a, like a, a new aristocracy here then, in where we have Wall Street 
infiltrating the White House. We have Goldman Sachs at the right hand of Mnuchin. Is, is this essentially the new aristocracy? Yeah, I think if you have a sufficiently, uh, you know, kind of cronied up capitalism, it does start to kind of mimic a lot of the aspects of an aristocracy. It, so it definitely have, can. So we, so we are going to have a revolution. <laughs> I, I think we're starting to see that play out. Have you ever read the book, yeah. uh, The Fourth Turning? Uh, do you know what? Funny, funny you should say that. No, I have it. I have it here. There's like about three or four books I have here where people keep saying to read. I've got The Sovereign Individual, I've got The Fourth Turning, and there's another one I've got. Uh, go on, tell me. why You're the second person, I think, who's recommended that as well. Yeah, so that, that was you know published in the 90s by two demographers, uh, and one of them is still active, uh, Neil Howe. And uh, so basically it pointed out that roughly every four generations, you have some sort of revolution. And that, that society kind of tends to go through these cycles where you have this big crisis, that's the fourth turning. And then starting with the, the first turning, like the next generation, you kind of have this period of unusual degree of kind of unity, right? So everyone experienced the chaos and now they're all kind of unified. And uh, if you're in the in-group, you benefit. If you're not, you, you kind of are, are suffering. But overall, most of the society is unified. And then you start to get that starts to, starts to fray. A little bit over time so of course at that unity is is inherently kind of impermanent and so over the second generation the third generation that starts to kind of fray and then by the fourth generation you tend up having like a another crisis where you kind of those 80 year old institutions are kind of torn down and rebuilt uh and you know i, I don't think they spelled it out in the book but if you look at the long-term debt cycle the you know in the united states and europe the long-term debt cycles were all fourth earnings it, the, it's the same right. kind of pattern where whenever you have that really big kind of debt bubble, you have that wealth concentration. That's usually when when this, the system is as structured for the past several decades is really no longer functioning and they kind of grind to a halt. And that's when you have both both economic kind of disruptions, uh, but then, it, you know, kind of tied to that are the social disruptions. Okay. Sorry, just remind me, what was the for, first turning again? Because So the first turning is like this period of unity. Right, so okay. everyone's kind of on the th- on the same board, and then the second is usually when there's uh, like kind of like a uh, kind of a a younger generation kind of pushing back against that to some extent. So that was in the U.S. That was kind of the '60s and '70s, right? So yeah, that was kind of so. The, no, yeah. the reason I asked the first, well, the first one was because if we're in the fourth turning now, if we're gonna have a revolution, we've got a period of unity coming afterwards. Yeah, but in in their timeline, that's like a decade away or more. Okay, well, I can still live through. But that. I don't. Yeah, I don't subscribe to the, you know, it's it's one of those, it's just a framework to think about. It's kind of like, yeah. especially because I, I focus on the economic aspect more than the, uh, somewhat more than the social aspect. Uh, and I kind of view the view the social aspect through the lens of an economic aspect. And just kind of observing that it's just, it's, those cycles play out with the long-term debt cycle. So as, as you kind of, you build up, you kind of, society goes through this thing, they get fat and happy, but then that starts to kind of fray over time. You start to get more and more division. You kind of build up more and more debt. You keep pushing the can down the road. And eventually when you reach the zero bound of interest rates, when you kind of reach a, a really high level of wealth inequality, it kind of gets harder and harder to push it. It gets heavier and heavier. And then you get more and more populism, more and more kind of protests. And that's kind of, it starts to, not only an economic cycle kind of starts anew, but then also it's it's kind of a new social framework usually that kind of accompanies that because you had that all kind of come together. Yeah, in your in your article, you you had it in the charts. You pointed to the two times over the last decade where the interest rates had hit the zero bound. We've started to see negative interest rates, which, to be honest, when they happened, I couldn't even get my head around understanding what that <laughs> actually meant. But um, I kind of I kind of eventually did. Did did we get negative interest rates the previous time? 
Uh, no, we didn't. And I think so there's a couple new. reasons. Yeah, this is a new part of it. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, because financial instruments get more and more sophisticated over time, because the world gets more and more interconnected over time, it kind of is, is volatility is dampened to some extent. And that allows kind of a larger and larger debt accumulation. Uh, so we have kind of a, a higher level of debt now than we did in, in the previous, uh, you know, kind of long-term debt cycle peak. And then in addition, demographics are, are kind of, um, you know, a lot more slow growing now than, of course, they were back, you know, 80 years ago. So when you have that kind of overall more deflationary forces, so there's, there's all these kind of just the amount of debt in the system and then kind of the weak population growth, weak consumption growth, it's it's by those two variables plus technology expansion are very deflationary. So then you have this okay. big inflationary kind of response to that. But if it's not big enough, then yes, the, you kind of push uh, rates negative. So could we be in some kind of like super cycle now? Even bigger cycle. Well, I, I think going back 80 years, I think an 80-year cycle is you know, a big enough cycle for me. Uh, I, I think you know, <laughs> if you go back, it's, that's already I, already, I already think some people push back and say that's too far to look back, right? You can't look back at, at that far. Uh, so I don't know if I want to go back further than that. But you know, at the very least, we're, we're kind of at, at an apex that you have to go back kind of 80 years in history books to see a similar kind of economic scenario. Hold on. You went back 2,600 years at one point. That's true. <laughs> but it's not it's not it's not one giant cycle it's more like showing how lo- how long these these cycles have gone back in time i, I guess what that bit was, was was the social aspect the similarities in the social aspects and the the kind of rise in wealth uh, inequality would have on the social unease within a city or within a country um I, yeah i guess i love that the same yeah i love that quote because you could you could you could literally it's so like you know, it's kind of so applicable to today's society. You could mm. put the same, you could put today's pol- politician names right on that quote, and it would just play out the same way. And exchange, you know, uh, you could you could add like student loan forgiveness, like all all the sorts of things they're talking about in that quote. Literally, just translate pretty much one for one for things that that are kind of floating around today. It's the same right. sort of cycle playing out. Can we talk about the um, event horizon? And sure. why, like 130%? Because you put, like, when um, debt to GDP hits 130%, that's essentially the debt event horizon. You can't escape now. Yeah. Is yeah, that just, it's... like, a historical thing? Or is there, is there a mathematical reason why you can't escape? Well, it's kind of both. So that that's that particular study was based on history that showed that over the past 200 years, whenever a sovereign reached over 130% of GDP, you know those debts were not paid back in real terms. So it was, in some cases, it was defaulted on. Uh, in other cases, it was it was kind of you know it was paid back, but the currency it was paid back in was was weaker. So it was basically you lost purchasing power, uh, and uh, and it showed that basically out of 52 cases that they looked at, 51 of them had that problem, and the one exception was Japan. Uh, because yeah. Japan, Japan has kind of a lot of uh, specific kind of attributes that that kind of give it a lot of defense against this problem, and so they've kind of been able to elongate uh, that issue more than pretty much any other economy has. So they're the world's largest creditor nation. For example, they own more foreign assets than foreigners own of their assets. They have a very kind of homogeneous culture. They're a very disciplined culture, and so they've been able to kind of pull the levers in, in a, such a way. That they've been able to have a longer, uh, they, they've been able to reach that debt level and then not have any kind of uh, devaluation consequences from that for a much longer period of time than any other. Uh, but the mathematical aspect to it essentially is that once you get debt that high, the only way to pay it down nominally would basically be able to, to, to run surpluses for a while. 
but in most political systems, that becomes you know kind of intolerable because you kind of get yeah. if you're if you're kind of extracting surpluses from the system, uh, then you know usually you get un- unrest at some point, right? So you get kind of an economic slowdown. You're not kind of juicing up the economy, and usually what happens is those people get voted out of office, and you bring in you know the next round, and and you kind of stimulate from there. For example. Uh, well, the oh. uh, I mean, in the UK, the austerity program over the last, I mean, was it decade under the Conservatives was has been hugely unpopular. Now they've survived their re-election recently, but I guess if that had gone on for another decade, I don't think it would have lasted. Certainly, yeah. the, I, I, I don't know how traditionally it affects, but they really, they really, the austerity programs really were quite cruel and difficult kind of changes to policies that affected the the, the most um, needy within society, which was yeah, shocking, really. Yeah, they usually just don't last that long. And I, I, you know, I think, you know, it's one of those things in theory, you could probably construct it in a way to work out. But just, you know, with with the imperfect systems that we all have, uh, generally 130 percent has been kind of the line in, line in the sand where anything short of kind of, of like a, a perfect effort would 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 pretty much fail at being able to nominally deleverage that. Where are we now? What's the level we're at now? Well, it depends on countries worldwide. So, United States so went over 100. We went over 130 uh, percent this year, and you know, we went into this. We we're already over 100 percent, so we're already kind of flirting with the event horizon. Uh, we went over 130 uh, percent. Japan's okay. a special case because they're at like 200 percent. You know, Europe varies. Each country's a little bit different, but you know, Italy's pretty high. Obviously, they're they're one of the highest. Uh, you know, Germany has has kept it pretty low. Uh, the UK, uh, they were a little bit behind the US, but I, you know, they had a, a spike this year. Most countries did. Uh, so Europe's a little bit behind us there, but they, Europe in general, has also a little bit more private debt. So, you know, kind of if you look at Japan, Europe, and the United States, uh, we're all in pretty much, you know, a long-term debt cycle scenario where we have very high sovereign debts, very high private debts. And so usually these things are very difficult to denom- deleverage nominally, and they usually ha- and end up experiencing currency devaluation, which in the mildest sense is, is yields being below the inflation rate for quite a while. And then in more aggressive scenarios can involve kind of a more inflationary outcome. So you're basically saying, in all likelihood, we're heading towards a currency deflation, uh, devaluation. I think most, most likely. likely. I think I think that's going to be a scenario to kind of that plays out in the 2020s, most likely. Right, because essentially, if we base it on history, history when other countries have done it, there's a base, about a two percent chance it won't happen. Yeah, and I also think it depends on the country you live in, right? So Japan, for example, has been able to push it longer than anyone thought, right? They have they have current account surpluses. They have the biggest uh, net international investment position. They have a couple of strengths. They've been able to push that. So a lot of people kind of use that as an example and say, well, look at Japan. They they got to this place and they didn't have problems for two decades. Uh, but you know, e- each country kind of is a little bit different, and not Japan so far has been somewhat of an exceptional case. So uh, you know, I, I I'd be somewhat surprised if if most countries were able to kind of push this as far as Japan has. But uh, uh, the only thing I always hear with with regards to Japan is they've gone through a two decade period of stagnation. Yeah, is this yeah, because I mean, of this? Well, I think that was a lot of factors. If you look at so they, it's actually been about three decades. So they their stock market peaked in 1989 and still hasn't yeah. gone back to that high level. So if you look at their stock valuations back then, there was there was higher stock valuations for them in 1989 than in the dot com bubble. Uh, and then in addition, their real estate valuations were higher than in the 2007, 2008 
bubble. So it's kind of like they had a stock market bubble and a real estate bubble that were both absolutely, absolutely bigger, even than the 2007 uh, periods and at the same time. So that was that was one of the biggest ever bubbles in history. So that's been deleveraging for for 30 years. Now, part of it was leverage and part of it was a sheer overvaluation. So that that just inherently takes a long time to play out. Uh, so, you know, but and it, but then in addition, they have their super slow demographics. So they have a very older society. They have a very, you know, at this point, their population's outright shrinking. So that definitely also contributed to, you know, especially nominal GDP is just not going up a ton because it's, you know, it's kind of in a more steady state. Right. Okay. So how does, so you covered this, this is where it got to kind of like, it got a bit sticky within your article. I followed most of it through, but when you got to the, kind of towards the end, started to explain how how a currency um, devaluation looks like. Can you just talk me through that so I can understand? Sure. Uh, and I, I think um, we can use the U.S. as an example because we've had three major devaluations uh, in the past century. So the first one in the 1930s was the gold peg devaluation. And this is what most most developed countries went through at that time. So they all kind of de depegged their currency and repegged it at a lower rate. So in the United States, you know, gold was about, you know, 20 bucks for an ounce of gold, uh, and then it was devalued for 35 bucks for an ounce of gold, right? So it was it was cut pretty dramatically. And what that allowed them to do essentially was was print a lot more money and still be able to back that by the amount of gold that they had. So in the United States, that was not very inflationary because it was going up against a very deflationary force of all that debt. Uh, so that moment of the gold peg devaluation was when outright deflation shifted to inflation. Uh, but it wasn't very high deflate, high inflation, right? So, so that whole kind of 1930s decade was not very inflationary, but it was kind of a devaluation relative to gold, uh, and that so that's one example. And then you know there are different charts that show kind of each each currency depegged versus gold at a different rate. So Switzerland, for example, held up a little bit better. The dollar went down pretty far, and then some several of the other European currencies went down further than the dollar relative to the gold peg that they had. So, and then the 1940s. Uh, that's when we had the more inflationary devaluation. Uh, so that's what we talked about before, where we had this, we had kind of spikes of double-digit inflation, but they held treasury yields at 2.5% or less. So anyone holding treasuries, you know, you got all your money back, but dollars, you know, the, the money supply went up dramatically in that decade. Uh, prices of everything went up dramatically in that decade, but your your the amount of debt you're getting back, like uh, the interest rate and everything, is is fixed, right? So you're you're mm -hmm. buying fewer goods with the money you're getting back. So that's an inflationary devaluation in the sense that you have high inflation and interest rates are not kind of uh, like uh, keeping up with that. So that that's another example. Uh, and then the third one was in the, in the 1970s. That was kind of a weird case because it wasn't a, a long-term debt cycle uh, period, uh, but basically it was a couple of different variables, high deficits, uh, you know, kind of a, a change in the global monetary system away from the Bretton Woods system. So a couple of kind of factors came together. And so we had very high persistent inflation in the U.S. and most of the developed world. Uh, and even though you didn't have yield curve control, uh, yields just rose more slowly than inflation. So you had these kind of a couple of periods where you had big spikes in inflation. and so you know, yields caught up more slowly. So again, if you're holding treasuries or other sovereign debt, you got all your money back, but by the time you got it back, you could buy fewer goods and services with it. And so those three periods all, you know, were kind of, uh, you know, kind of faster than normal uh, broad money supply increases, just a lot more currency units in the system and those currency units buying fewer goods and services. And do you think this is how it's, do you think this is how it will play out this time again? 
I, I think so. I, I, I think that, you know, at the very least, I think that that real yields are going to be negative for quite a while, meaning that, you know, anyone holding kind of sovereign debt or cash in the bank, any sort of yield you get, which even even if it's marginally positive, like we have in the U.S., uh, is unlikely to keep up with inflation. Uh, and so it's not even keeping up with reported inflation. And then underlying real inflation for many people is is probably higher than the reported inflation. So, you know, kind of that super low kind of zero level of interest rates, uh, if, if you're basically holding treasures or holding cash over a 10 year period, you're, you're by the time you get all that back, you buy fewer goods and services with it. Whereas normally we think of, you know, treasuries or, or, or putting money in the bank as something that grows our wealth. But that's that's very unlikely to play out, uh, you know, in this decade. Do you think we could see double digit inflation, annual inflation within, say, the U.S. market? I know I know they're saying in Turkey right now, I think it's like 12 percent. Do you think you could actually see that in the U.S.? I think it's possible. I think it's, it's hard to do because uh, one one difference is that, you know, countries that that borrow in currencies that they don't print, uh, which, right. you know, emerging markets like Turkey, Argentina, uh, they tend to have more inflationary outcomes because their obligations, their their liabilities are priced in a currency they can't print. So they, they can't right. kind of devalue their debt. They Whereas developed countries, most of their debt is denominated in their own currencies. Uh, so they, they have more kind of levers they can pull to make things happen more gradually. Mm-hmm. But then, it, you know, there's always kind of disruptions to that kind of plan. So everyone, you know, Everyone has a plan and, until kind of reality comes. So I think I think from a policymaker standpoint, they want to have it be very gradual. They they want, for example, inflation to run at three four percent while they're holding yields at, at one or two percent, and so you kind of get that gradual uh, currency devaluation over time. Whereas it, it's very possible that if you get a supply shock uh, or you get some sort of you know major social unrest or you know something that that makes it so that the supply of goods and services in the system you know, or not keeping up with that printed money, then you you can definitely get kind of a double digit spike. Another like example pan- would be a- like a pandemic, <laughs> like a pandemic. Yeah, well, yeah. For, for example, we've seen uh, grocery price inflation. Uh, most of it hasn't reached double digits. A couple categories have, but most of it, you know, we've seen kind of three, four, five percent inflation in, in groceries because we've we've you know, our supply chain is not super flexible. So the supply chains that, that give foods to restaurants, for example, can't be quickly converted to put those same foods towards grocery, uh, you know, supermarkets. Uh, mm. So when we've all kind of consumed far less from restaurants and consumed far more from groceries, that's resulted in some supply shocks and, and some price increases. Yeah. Okay. So so basically what you're saying to me is, Pete, holding cash over the next 10 years in the bank is kind of risky. I think so. Yeah, I view treasuries yeah. and, and and cash in the bank is risky. And I, you know, I still it doesn't mean I hold a zero amount because I, you know, I, I hold it for liquidity, and then also mm-hmm. to some extent hold it for counter cyclical investing. So if we get a big dip in any of the assets I like, I can take some of that and kind of deploy that. If we get kind of a, a brief kind of you know surge where something goes up way faster than I thought, I can take a few chips off the table. Uh, but other than other than cases like that, there's not a super compelling reason to just put a lot of money in the bank uh, or or into sovereign debt and then hope that over the next decade that that keeps its purchasing power. Okay, so let let me then just switch a gear with you a second. What's your uh, what's your Bitcoin thesis? Like, how how much are you interested in Bitcoin? How much do you know? Obviously, if you've been listening to my show, you care a bit. But what's your own personal thesis with it? Uh, so I'm bullish on it. So okay. I I first covered it uh, in writing back in 2017. 
uh, because it was having that big kind of surge and I was getting all these mm -hmm. emails from people like, hey, can you cover Bitcoin? So I, I wrote this article on Bitcoin and my view at the time, because that came out in like autumn of 2017, I was like, it's it's really overbought. Uh, I analyzed it from a couple different perspectives. Like I analyzed it both as a medium of exchange and as a store of value. And as a medium of exchange, uh, I considered it overvalued, but as a store of value, I thought it had a lot of potential, but that at the current price, I just wasn't interested. Uh, so I, I kind of just said, there's a lot of risk here. If you want to put, you know, 1%, that's fine. But I, you know, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't go overboard at these prices. And of course, you know, we, next few months, we got that big kind of surge to like 20,000. Then we got the collapse to like three or 4,000. And we've been in this kind of two year, two year, three year consolidation. Now in April of this year, uh, it was back around the same price as when I analyzed it in 2017. So it was like in, in the kind of the six, six to 7,000 range. And uh, that's when I turned bullish on it. So in my research service, uh, I went bullish on it. And then so and then I published a, a public article in June on it, kind of outlining all the reasons why I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on it now, especially in this point in the halving cycle. Uh, and so you have kind of that macro backdrop that I just described. We have, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, pers persistently negative real yields, uh, probably, you know, potentially a degree of, of, of quicker de currency devaluation in some scenarios. Meanwhile, you know, there are assets like gold and Bitcoin that are the scarce assets that even though they don't pay a, a yield in many cases, they're, they're scarce. So they can hold their value against kind of more and more kind of uh, fiat currency being printed. Uh, so. That's been kind of my main thesis that in especially in this part of the having cycle, uh, there's a pretty asymmetric reward for for holding Bitcoin. Right. Okay. So you're in. I'm in. Yeah. Since April. You're in. Wow. Okay. That's pretty cool. I moved my uh, so essentially my Bitcoin podcast is a little media company, but it holds cash reserves. Um, is a profitable business, and I moved uh, to sixty percent Bitcoin position because. I have no need to spend these cash reserves over the next you know, at least 12 months, maybe longer. I was really nervous about holding cash reserves. So I I went 60%. A very, I would say I did a very uh, small version of what uh, MicroStrategy did. I'm assuming you followed yeah. their news. What did you make yep. of that? Uh, well, it's interesting. So when they did that, I actually I actually bought a, a small amount to, to kind of convince myself to keep following it. And because... Uh, you know, some of my portfolios uh, that I that I kind of track for people, I was like, that's actually a way to get slight indirect Bitcoin exposure in those portfolios. So, but I've been following that a little bit. Basically, that's a company that was extraordinarily cash rich. So they had over, you know, half a billion dollars in cash. They they used to have a period of fast growth, but in the past few years, they weren't really uh, growing, but they had that really good asset of no debt and tons of cash. And so, you know, imagine being just... So your biggest asset is how much cash you have. And then you start to read about kind of, you know, negative rates or yield curve control or inflation or any of these things. And so, you know, he, he clearly did a ton of research. Uh, I actually found it interesting because he he had a couple of different interviews recently. And he mentioned that he, he sent my Bitcoin article to his board of directors. So he nice. actually... He actually read that Bitcoin article. That was kind of one of the pieces that he that he looked at. Uh, so it's kind of full loop. He read my article, but then I invested in his company. Uh, so I think it's his is clearly a really big play. I mean, you know, I, I would not have been surprised to see some companies put, say, five, ten percent of their cash in a Bitcoin. But the fact that he put literally like all of his cash in a Bitcoin was definitely pretty surprising. And I, I think, you know, I think one of the kind of the underlying things is that now, you know because they they don't have a bitcoin etf right so the closest thing they have is like the grayscale trust mm. uh which is you know trades over the counter but now you have a nasdaq listed security that is like the one third of the market cap is bitcoin uh so <laughs> you know 
is kind of like an indirect Bitcoin ETF because any any fund manager, like let's say their mandate is they can only invest in stocks. Well, now if, if that manager wants to have a Bitcoin exposure, he can say, "Well, I'm just buying the stock. I think it's a good software company. I want to buy it." But really, what he's what he's doing is he's getting Bitcoin exposure. Uh, so it's kind of like he's turned his company into this kind of hybrid <laughs> security. Yeah, pretty much. Madness. Yeah, because I look at other companies. I mean, you. Yeah, I think is everyone always thinks of Apple. I mean, I don't know what their cash reserves are now. Is it like 120 billion or something insane? Some, but something they, like that, yeah. Yeah, but as a company, they will be facing over the next decade potentially losing a, a very significant. Well, we talk in purchasing power, but the value of that money. I I wonder what a company like that is even considering doing. Well, I think they're a little bit less vulnerable because so with Apple's case, they actually have a, a lot of debt to go along with their cash. And so they've kind of levered, the, they levered themselves up for share purchases. So they issue really cheap debt. And of course, they have one of the highest credit ratings in the world, Apple. So right. they can borrow at ex- extraordinarily low rates. Uh, so their balance sheet has a ton of cash and then a ton of debt, although the debt is you know not that high relative to, the, to their incomes and everything. Uh, but in terms of just because the company's so big, they have a, a pretty good amount of debt. So it's kind of like someone that say, has a lot of cash, but then also has a fixed rate mortgage, right? So it's if you were to get that kind of cash devaluation scenario, Apple's kind of more balanced to that because their their debts get kind of devalued, but then also some of their assets get devalued. Uh, whereas MicroStrategy had no debt and tons of cash, so a currency devaluation scenario for them is all bad. And there are a couple right, okay. of companies, and and there are companies like Google and Facebook that are in this uh, same scenario as MicroStrategy, where they they don't have the debt. Uh, and they just have tons and tons and tons of cash. So they're actually kind of, you know, vulnerable in the same way that MicroStrategy was. They don't have cash as the same percentage of their market cap that, that MicroStrategy had. I mean, their their cash relative to the size of the company was absolutely massive. But there are these other companies that that have, you know, tens of billions of dollars in, in cash and, and T-bills sitting on their on their bank, uh, you know, on their balance sheet. And they don't have the the liabilities to kind of offset that. So, yeah, they're vulnerable. So is it then therefore a good time right now to take out debt? I think it could be a time to take out debt responsibly. I mean, I, yeah. I would never encourage people to take on unnecessary leverage. I mean, it's not a, I don't think it's a bad time to have a, a, a fixed rate mortgage on an appropriate property, for example. Uh, if I was running a company, I would, I would have an, a non-zero amount of debt. You know, I would have, you know, a, a strong balance sheet, but I, you know, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have zero debt. Interesting. I don't know what I could take debt out for in a three-man podcast business, but (laughs) maybe that Lamborghini. (laughs) Okay, so listen, just to finish out, a couple of things. If you are just a normal person like myself, just like trying to figure out day by day how to get by, I want to pay my mortgage, I don't don't want to be broke, Um, I've got a little bit of cash savings, Um, I, I own a few assets, what should I be preparing for over the next decade? I think there's a couple of things. One is, uh, you know, kind of diversifying income sources as much as possible. So either, you know, people have their their main income from their job usually, but any sort of side hustle they can do or, or develop their own skills, so they can have kind of multiple sources of income. Uh, if it's a family, so there, you know, there's 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 two people in the family, and they can, you know, if they both have an income, they can try to make it so that their expenses are low enough that if they were to lose one of the incomes, you know, the other income can still cover all their core expenses, right? So the other income is kind of for saving and fun, right? So they mm-hmm. they kind of uh, made themselves anti-fragile. They can diversify the types of assets they hold, right? So they can they can have you know 
some global equities, they can have Bitcoin, they can have precious metals, they can have their own, their own house, whatever, whatever the case may be that, that makes sense for them to have kind of a diversified assets with an emphasis on, on things that are scarce. And then, uh, you know, if they have debt, just to make sure that you know, they're not over leveraged, right? Because you don't want to, you don't want to have a ton of debt and then lose your income and not be able to support that debt and have to kind of sell those assets kind of at an inopportune time. Uh, but for example, certain fixed rate mortgages make a lot of sense for people, things like that. Uh, okay, brilliant. All right, well, listen, this has been great. Something Luke said to me that stuck with me is that you should consider your portfolio in terms of cash, property, uh, equities, and scarce assets and try and rebalance over time, which is something I've never done. Um, and I've started to do that. I'm, I would say I'm a, I'm a highly leveraged with Bitcoin right now, and I'm trying to get rid of my cash and thinking about a second property um it's uh yeah difficult times to try and like navigate if you're uh, if you're not economically trained like myself um your blog is utterly fantastic and i'm subscribed tell people where to follow you though lynn uh so i run lynnalden.com so i have a lot of free stuff there uh and then i'm also on twitter at lynn Alden contact okay what is the day gig like are you a consultant uh, well, my website is mainly like the research service. Uh, okay. So I have that kind of a, the premium thing on the side. Uh, right. My, my long term background has actually been in engineering and, and kind of engineering management. Right. I didn't see the premium thing. It did stand out to me. Tell me about the premium service. Uh, so most of my free stuff, for example, that the free newsletter comes out every six weeks, whereas the premium service, uh, I report every two weeks and sometimes more often and uh, kind of real time portfolios, things like that. You don't push the premium enough. I didn't even see that. Just hidden there yeah, in the navigation. Yeah, I don't have a. I don't do like aggressive advertising. It's only two hundred dollars a year. Come on. Yeah. I can afford <laughs> that. I'm gonna sign up now. I'm gonna do it. <laughs> Listen, Lynn. Thanks for coming on. This has been great. Really useful for me, and uh, I'm glad you're in, into the Bitcoin thing as well. Uh, good luck with everything you do. Yep. And thanks for having me. And uh, I really enjoy your podcast. It definitely helps educate people. I, I kind of. I came across a couple of your episodes and if, it, if there's ever like an angle that I don't get, you usually you like in your archives, you usually have like a podcast where you, you brought on like the exact right person to discuss it. So, so somebody, really great. do you actually use the archive? Like, cause there's an archive up on my website and it's got it by like category and by guests. Are you the actual, are you the one user of that archive? Uh, no, I just, I just, for example, we're search on YouTube or something like that and just be like, you know, say there's a specific thing I'm looking for and it's like such and such Bitcoin, I just type it in and often like your podcast would come up because you had like the guests talking about that. Brilliant. Okay, that's fantastic. All right, well, listen, I'm going to sign up to your uh, website now. I'm going to get the premium service, but thanks for coming on. I'm sure we will do this again and good luck with everything. Yep, thanks for having me. All right, what do you think of that? Did you enjoy listening to Lynn? Did you enjoy having her on the show? Now, a lot of the things that she talks about are really bullish for Bitcoin. If we do see a currency devaluation over the next decade, holding a scarce asset is surely a good thing. However, it does sound like it could be catastrophic for a lot of people. So it's kind of weird. Sometimes it makes it hard to get excited about. I obviously haven't lived through a hard currency devaluation in the UK. The inflationary impact upon the pound has been rather, you know, it's more slow and insidious. You just gradually see the price of a pint of beer going up. But we do have the potential of seeing this kind of hard and significant devaluation over the next decade and having watched the impact of a currency collapse in countries like Lebanon and Turkey I can see how inflation really really impacts people 
So anyway, I'm I am confident that holding Bitcoin is a good thing, but you know, as I said, I'm trying not to get too excited about it because I don't want to see this kind of negative impact that happens to other people. Anyway, I love talking to Lynn. Her perspective is really interesting. I will definitely try and have her on the show again in the future. And as I said in the intro, I do highly recommend signing up for her premium service. Links for that are in the show notes. And as I always say, if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. I do receive a bunch of emails a week. I do try and reply to everyone. And my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, if you want to support the show, really one of the best things you can do for me is just go up to iTunes and leave a review. If you enjoy the show, it takes about two minutes. Hopefully you think it deserves five stars, but whatever I deserve, it really is helpful. It helps with the rankings. Outside of that, as I mentioned in the intro, I've got this fascinating new series that has just started on my other podcast, Defiance. It's all about Ghislaine Maxwell. She was the girlfriend of disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. In this first part, we look into the background, into her background, into her childhood, and mainly her father, Robert Maxwell, who, if you are from the UK, you know who this guy is. He was a flamboyant media mogul who ended up dying in suspicious circumstances himself. So it's going to be a fascinating story. You can check that out at defiance.news. And as I said, outside of that, if you want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 